This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna Hobart. China is bankrolling a new hospital for Papua New Guinea's Defence Force in a move some analysts fear could help Beijing establish a much greater military presence in the Pacific nation. PNG's military commander recently confirmed the project. It's valued at more than 13 million Australian dollars. Yet Australia insists it still enjoys a close defence and security partnership with its northern neighbour. The ABC's defence correspondent Andrew Green has this exclusive report. Inside Papua New Guinea's Murray Barracks, the country's chief of defence last week delivered his end-of-year parade speech. Towards the conclusion of the address, Major General Mark Goyner had some multi-million dollar news. Chinese commitment to fund the construction of hospital at Thurman Barracks at the cost of 31 million kenna. In this recording obtained by the ABC, PNG's military commander details for the first time progress on the Chinese initiative worth roughly 13 million Australian dollars. Work has commenced for our defence minister to sign the protocols for the use of the funds and scoping design works of the hospital has started and will continue in 2023. Seated in the audience, China's new defence attaché, Colonel Zhang, who General Goyner addressed directly. In thanking for the Chinese military's continued support with training and willingness to support us in areas that need capacity building. Earlier, the PNG defence chief acknowledged Australia remained his country's top military partner. Our longest and closest defence partner. The long and enduring relationship, military partnership, and there I say, mateship between Papua New Guinea and Australia is the most important to us. Despite that assurance, Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute says this country should be worried about the latest Chinese military project in PNG. A military hospital one day a military base the next. I think that's the thing that we need to be aware of. He warns that just like in Solomon Islands, China's People's Liberation Army is working hard to establish closer links with PNG's military and a greater presence in the country. It's fairly clear that the PNG military are relying on China to a greater degree for capacity building and training purposes. And ultimately, where that leads is an increasing presence for the PLA in PNG. And I think that's what we need to be cautious of. Australia's Defence Department has declined to say when it became aware of the Chinese hospital plans, but in a statement, a spokesperson told the ABC... Decisions made by the Government of Papua New Guinea and PNGDF are a matter for Papua New Guinea. Australia and Papua New Guinea have a close defence and security partnership focusing on areas of mutual priority and interest. Just last week, Australia helped to open a new 100-person accommodation block at one of PNG's other military barracks. And Defence Minister Richard Miles has indicated he wants to sign an ambitious security treaty with the country as soon as possible. Andrew Green reporting. Russian President Vladimir Putin says his country won't be intimidated by the Patriot missiles the United States has donated to Ukraine. The defensive weapons were promised during Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the White House, but President Putin says they won't stop him achieving his goals in Ukraine. And while Russia's own war chest has been depleted, officials in Washington say Moscow is getting help from North Korea. Europe correspondent Nick Dole reports. 
It's his first overseas trip since the invasion began, and Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is making the most of it. On his way back from Washington, he stopped off in Poland to meet President Andrzej Duda. How are you? How are you? Thank you so much. Poland's played an important role in getting refugees out of Ukraine, and it's been instrumental getting Western weapons in. Soon there'll be more in the form of US-made Patriot missiles. Speaking in Poland, President Zelensky's been reflecting on his transatlantic trip. We've come back from Washington with good results, he said, the ones that will really help. When we say patriots in Ukraine and in the US, we mean protection of the state and protection of people. This issue is solved for Ukraine. The missiles are exactly the sort of hardware Ukraine's been requesting as it tries to defend itself against Russian attacks on its cities and energy infrastructure. The Patriot systems can shoot down cruise missiles, short-range ballistic missiles and aircraft. Last week, the Kremlin warned that sending Patriots to Ukraine would be viewed as a provocation. But speaking overnight, President Putin said... He's not worried by it. In regards to the Patriots, it's a rather old system and it doesn't work as well as Russia's S-300 system. Nonetheless, those who oppose us proceed on the fact that this is a defensive weapon. OK, we'll take that into account and an antidote will always be found. But those who are doing this are doing it in vain because it's just drawing out the conflict. The White House says there are more signs Moscow's gearing up for a drawn-out war. National Security Spokesman John Kirby says the Wagner Group, the mercenary force that's fighting for the Russian side, has been sent weapons by North Korea, although it's not clear how the US reached that assessment. North Korean officials have said publicly that they would not support Russia's war in Ukraine, and yet here they are delivering arms to Wagner in direct violation of UN Security Security Council resolutions. And we urge North Korea to cease these deliveries, deliveries to Wagner immediately. Mr Kirby says the initial weapons package, including rockets, won't change much on the battlefield, but the White House is expecting more deliveries in the future. Europe correspondent Nick Dahl. Fiji's political impasse continues without a clear winner after this month's elections. The Sadelfa Party, which is now in the position of kingmaker, with the two major parties now competing for its support to form government, is holding a meeting this morning to discuss its options. It's hoped that gathering will provide some clarity about what happens next. Our reporter in the capital, Suva, is Lethe Mavono. Lethe, what's this meeting this morning and what will happen there? This morning, the management board of Sedelpa sits again. This is identical to the meeting that was held earlier in the week on Tuesday, where the management board of about 43 members are meant to choose the coalition partner and primarily then the party that becomes Fiji's next government. Uh, This was a decision that had been made earlier in the week, but the party's outgoing general secretary had complained to the Registrar of Political Parties, alleging there were irregularities with in the membership saying there were people whose terms had expired, people who had no business being at that meeting, who had voted and given the 16-14th core that made the decision to go with City uh, Rombuka's People's Alliance Party. So now that irregularities have been addressed during the week, the board meets again today and have asked both the Fiji First Party and Rombuka's PAP and NFP Alliance to present to them again. The police and the ruling government's announced that it's called for military help. Why is that? 
Well, there were allegations that came up yesterday morning and the day before that. They're calling it minority groups were, you know, facing violence, that there was stoning incidences. It must be said that the media currently covering the situation here in PG have asked for details and have asked for confirmation of reports on where this violence is taking place. But uh, this is yet to come from the police. But um, to use the, the um, Commissioner of Police's words, he says there are people living in fear of being victimized through you know, racial uh, violence. So that had been the announcement made yesterday morning. However, I did do a 10-kilometer uh, reconnaissance trip all around um, the several townships that border uh, Fiji's capital, Suva, and saw no signs of military presence. In fact, even police checkpoints, which had been on the streets during the election period, have now been pulled back. Um, it's a very confusing situation, but ordinary Fijians are taking to social media with a campaign using the hashtag we are calm in Fiji to say that things are, are well here and that there is peace on the street. And this decision to call in the military, is that making people anxious? What's the public sentiment like there? Uh, it, it's definitely calling, um, uh, you know, for a lot of reaction from the public. People are frustrated. People are saying that the only thing making them anxious is the is the possibility that there will be military on the streets. Uh, Fiji's been heavily militarized over the the, um, the several decades in which we've had three um, coups and upheavals, and people are rejecting the decision for the military to join the police on the streets and um, uh, using social media to say everything is fine and using in social media to illustrate that racial harmony is actually a situation here in Fiji. That's our reporter, Lethe Mavono, in Suva. U.S. Congressional Committee investigating the January the 6th attack on the Capitol is about to release its final report. A lengthy executive summary was published earlier this week as the committee met publicly for the last time and voted to refer the former president, Donald Trump, on four criminal charges. Lawyers for the Department of Justice and Mr Trump are likely to pore over the final report and interview transcripts as they're released. North America correspondent Barbara Miller reports. January 6, Committee Chair Benny Thompson wasn't giving much away when asked about the final report, which was supposed to be released yesterday but was delayed because of the Ukrainian president's visit and still hasn't dropped today. Well, I think you'll see that it's very comprehensive, that it's thorough in its presentation, and uh, it will be available to uh, the public at large, both the printed and the digital version. At its final public meeting earlier in the week, the January 6th committee voted to refer former President Donald Trump for prosecution on four charges over his actions leading up to and on the day of the attack, including inciting or assisting an insurrection. Committee member Jamie Raskin. An insurrection is a rebellion against the authority of the United States. It is a grave federal offence. The gist of the committee's executive summary, which runs to around 150 pages, was that none of the events of January the 6th would have happened without Donald Trump. The full report is expected to lay out in more detail the evidence which the committee found supports their recommendations that Donald Trump be charged. The committee has also been slowly releasing transcripts of interviews it conducted in its 18-month-long probe with around 1,000 witnesses. Today, transcripts of some of the interviews with former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, a key witness during bombshell public hearings, have been released. 
Ms Hutchinson tells the committee that her first lawyer, who was paid by associates of Donald Trump, pressured her to downplay her recollection of events. She said the lawyer, Stefan Pasantino, told her the committee didn't know what she could and could not recall. The less you remember, the better, she quoted the lawyer as saying. The report and transcripts will run into the thousands of pages, which could also feed into the Department of Justice's own investigation into January the 6th. The DOJ is not bound in any way by the recommendations of the committee. Donald Trump has repeatedly dismissed the January 6th committee's work as a witch hunt. On his social media platform today, he reposted a campaign ad for his 2024 bid. But if he doesn't read the full report, you can bet his lawyers will be poring over it. This is Barbara Miller in Washington, reporting for AM. Tropical cyclone Ellie has made landfall near the West Australian Northern Territory border and it's bringing gale force winds to vast stretches of coastline. Communities are preparing for it and taking refuge as the Category 1 system passes by, as Matt Bamford reports. It's been a wild and windy night for Dundee Beach resident Eleanor Burrows. Like many people along the Northern Territory's western coastline, she's been watching as tropical cyclone Ellie passes by. Well, the weather picked up. um, It's been raining all day yesterday, but um, the wind picked up last night about bloody, I don't know, eight, nine o'clock. And um, it's been blowing all night, still blowing a gale here at present. So it's been raining off and on. But um, no, it's been a good night. I mean, like I said, we've got a fairly solid house, so we haven't noticed anything much. We'll notice a little bit more come morning to what's been blown down or blown around. The Category 1 system made landfall around 11pm near the Daly River mouth with wind gusts of up to 100 kilometres per hour. Tell me what you're going to be doing over the next few hours. Well, as soon as it comes daylight, we'll be um, checking our place and checking the the rental property and um, see whereabouts the cyclone is and and make sure whether we haven't forgotten anything and things are not blown around the place and loose. So we'll be checking all that and, um, yeah, possibly even cleaning up branches and whatever and stuff like that, depending on um, how the weather's been during the night sort of thing. So, And what have you had to do to prepare? Pack up some furniture and outdoor furniture and stuff like that and put it all away and make sure there's nothing loose that's going to be blowing around or anything like that. We're um, fairly well situated. And, yeah, nothing's going to surprise me. No, nothing's going to um, blow down or anything like that. Our, our buildings are fairly solid, so... We're, all, we're sitting fairly good, actually. And do you get a couple of cyclones come through this time of the year? Usually um, this is, um, you know, the cyclone season. We haven't had a cyclone for a few years now. The, the last one that came through Dundee was um, Marcus. Yeah, it was all good then too. So, you know, it just blew down a few trees and whatever. But, yeah, you, you expect you sort of get ready for it. And don't know how many cyclones we're going to get this season. Cyclone Ellie is now moving south in the direction of communities like Wadair. Residents there have been warned to take action and prepare, but emergency services say they're not expecting any evacuations. Towns across the WA border have also been on alert, but the storm isn't expected to cause them serious damage. Dundee Beach resident Eleanor Burrows says she's expecting more wind and rain in the coming hours. We're just in a high wind area. Last time we checked, the cyclone was um, down towards the border, so it's a, you know it's a fair way from us. So uh, we're probably just going to get strong winds and rain. We're not in the direct path of the cyclone or anything, so it's just very windy. Dundee Beach resident Eleanor Burrows, and she was speaking with our reporter Matt Bamford. 
Usually at this time of year, suicide prevention services experience an increase in calls to their phone hotlines. This year, they're already seeing more Australians getting in touch for help as they face cost of living and housing pressures, combined with trauma from the pandemic and climate disasters. And the sector's warning more government help is desperately needed. Isabel Masali reports. Hello, this is Lifeline. May we help you? As one of the people on the end of the phone line, Robert Sams wants you to know you don't have to be in a suicidal crisis to reach out for help. And our definition of crisis is whatever it means for the person on that day. So people should uh, know that when when you call Lifeline, we will listen. Uh, We will listen without judgment and we will listen with empathy. And it is about your story. It is about what you want to talk about. And and our role is to be there and sit alongside you through that journey, through that story. As well as working the phones, Robert Sams is the CEO of Lifeline Direct. He says before the pandemic, the service was receiving about 2,500 calls a day, but it's now climbed to about 3,000. Yeah, we're really grateful that for our team of volunteers, particularly to pick up those phones, that we're there to meet those people and answer those calls. But I think, you know, there is a... um, cumulative trauma effect that many people across Australia are experiencing after all of those events, you know, bushfires and floods, the droughts. And yeah, COVID is in many ways, you know, is still amongst us and there are still many people worried about that. Adding to that is the pressure caused by the rising cost of living and housing issues. Suicide Prevention Australia represents a range of organisations and it knows all too well about the spike in demand. While it's good that people are reaching out for help, Deputy CEO Matthew McLean says there's a concerning side too. So we see every month data on suicides in Victoria and New South Wales that represent about 60% of the population. And, you know, that really suggests we're seeing some, some increasing rates of suicide. That's not a full national picture, but what it tells us when we look at it alongside high rates of demand for crisis services and high rates of distress reported in our quarterly community tracker, we know people are struggling out there. The organisation is calling on the federal government to fast-track its recent commitments to these services and go beyond with additional support. It's also raising concerns about the recent halving of access to cheaper psychology sessions through the Better Access program. We have a, a critical window of opportunity that if we put in place the right supports now, including supports that have worked during the pandemic, we can keep suicide rates down and turn that trend towards what we all want in this, zero suicides in our community. In a statement, Health Minister Mark Butler said the government was committed to implementing reforms to make a real difference to Australians' mental health. He says the government will soon hold a forum of experts and people with lived experience to provide advice on how to improve the Better Access program. For now, as Australians enter the Christmas and New Year period, Matthew McLean says don't be afraid to reach out. Wherever you are and however you're doing, know that there is support available and that you can reach out 24 hours, seven days a week to important services like Lifeline on 13 11 14 or on their text and chat channels. There, there is help available and we encourage everyone to access it. Yes, Matthew McLean from Suicide Prevention Australia, Isabel Masali reporting. And a reminder, Lifeline's number is 13 11 14. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.